Good morning. morning. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study. We thank you for uh, your spirit. We ask that your spirit and angels will join us this morning. Our minds will be enlightened. We want to remember one of our class members, Dennis Hilton, who's been in the hospital this week and has been ill. We ask that your healing hand will be upon him in accordance with your will. Pray that you bring him back to us to join us in fellowship again soon. Be with the members of our class that are not here today, that you will uh, guide them wherever they are, bless them, keep them safe, and return them to us. And I pray for the students in our class that are going to be graduating this weekend, that you will bless them, bless their future, guide in their uh, lives, that they may go out and be bright, shining lights for you in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number seven in our quarterly, The Wonder of Jesus. And the title of the lesson this week is The Puzzle of His Conduct. It really did, man. Look at the answer to that prayer. Hey, that's Dennis, for all of you who don't know. We just prayed for you, Dennis, and you're here. Look at that. <laughs> As you think about the title of our lesson, is there, are there things about Jesus' conduct that puzzle you? Are there questions that you might have, something that you would like us to be sure and discuss today regarding the conduct of Jesus. One of the things that uh, I can tell you as we go through the lesson, um, most of the things that uh, I think the lesson authors uh, jumped on, I think you'll find I had problems with, uh, they're jumping on it. Um, but uh, one of the things that always, always troubled me, or not troubled, but question is, why when he healed the blind guy did he make mud out of spit? And put on his eyes. I was like, why didn't you just heal him? Anybody ever thought about that? Okay, it was just, it's not a big deal, but it's like, okay, I'm going to ask him, okay, what was the point of making the mud and putting on his eyes and go tell him to wash in a pool? Well, you know, I guess to, to test the guy's faith, to see if he'd really do it like Naaman. The Naaman had to go wash seven times before he could be healed. Um, you know, some of those questions. But there's some Jewish superstition that uh, spitting in the mud was a remedy for this. I can't tell you the source I heard that from. Can't hear what he, said. he said, wasn't there a Jewish superstition that somehow spitting in mud was a cure for things? I, I have not heard that. Well, let's go on. It says, if Jesus' uh, conduct was, was, is puzzling, and evidently some members of the, of the editors of this quarterly thought some of his conduct was puzzling, if it is puzzling to us, would it be some inherent problem in what Jesus did, or would it be a problem in our understanding, discernment, insight, awareness? Where would the problem be? Yeah, and remember that as we go through, because I get some different implications uh, from the lesson authors as we go through. Yes, Linda. Well, I'm I'm thinking that it was an act of recreation. You know, he made us out of dust, and it was like a little miniature recreation for him to use the dust to recreate his vision and his eyes. Interesting thought. I hadn't thought of that. That's that's an interesting thought. I want to contemplate that. That's a good one. Um, Yes. Yes. Also, maybe he didn't want to make it for sure known that he healed and maybe the the clay's healed. Do we do we have uh, any belief that the clay was was medicinal and healing a man born blind from birth? We're yeah. just trying to throw people off the off the trail. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> so who who actually healed? If we saw things from God's perspective, would we ever be puzzled about anything Jesus did? No. No. So that's one of our challenges. What about the angels? Do the angels in heaven, the unfallen angels, find 
Christ's incarnation and his mission and his activities here on earth puzzling? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And what do you think the main thing they were puzzled over? And that's a kind of a broad question. Well, it says in Peter, it tells us that the, concerning the salvation. That's what it says. Concerning the salvation, the prophets spoke about the grace of God and the salvation of Christ. It says, even the angels longed to look into these things. So the plan of salvation, the angels are, are, are trying to discern, trying to understand. They're puzzled. They've got questions about that. I'm going to read you a couple of quotes from one of the founders of our church along these lines of what the angels were looking into in this plan of salvation. first one's out of a book called Patriarchs and Prophets, page 68. It says, But the plan of redemption had a broader and deeper purpose than the salvation of man. It was not for this alone that Christ came to the earth. It was not merely that the inhabitants of this little world might regard the law of God as it should be regarded, but it was to vindicate the character of God before the universe. To this result of his great sacrifice, its influence upon the intelligences of other worlds as well as upon man, the Savior looked forward when he, just before his crucifixion, said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all all unto me. Now some Bible translations have stuck the word men in there. But if you go to the Greek, men is not there. It's actually, Jesus said, I will draw all unto me. Um... So I just thought that's interesting. All, thinking about all the entire universe. And of course you can put that together with the text out of uh, Ephesians where it says that the mystery of God is through Christ. He will bring all things in heaven and earth under one head, even Jesus Christ. So we have the, the biblical support for this idea. The act of Christ in dying for the salvation of man would not only make heaven accessible to men, but before all the universe would justify God and his son in their dealing with the rebellion of Satan. It would establish the perpetuity of the law of God and would reveal the nature and results of sin. What law, by the way, is this talking about? The law of love. The law of love, which is the foundation of the government of God and all life is created to operate on that law. And then one more quote. This is Desire of Ages 19 and 20. It says, By coming to dwell with us, Jesus was to reveal God both to men and to angels. He was the Word of God, God's thought made audible. In his prayer for his disciples, he said, I have declared unto them thy name, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. But not alone for his earth-born children was this revelation given. Our little world is the lesson book of the universe. God's wonderful purpose of grace, the mystery of redeeming love, is the theme into which angels desire to look. And it will be their study throughout endless ages. Both the redeemed and the unfallen beings will find in the cross of Christ their science and their song. It will be seen that the glory shining from the face of Jesus is the glory of self-sacrificing love. In the light of Calvary, it will be seen that the law of self-renouncing love is the law of life for earth and heaven, that the love which seeks not her own has its source in the heart of God, and that in the meek and lowly one is manifested the character of him who dwells in the light which no man can approach. So, as you think about those, thought, those, those passages, what are your thoughts about those? Well, maybe we should start with the question, can anybody give us any additional Bible verses besides the one that we've already quoted about from Peter and, and the one in, of Jesus' prayer that was quoted in the text? Any other Bible quotes that would support this, this idea that angels are studying and looking into these things? I don't know the text. I just know what it says, that God was in Christ reconciling all things. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. What about 1 Corinthians 4.9? 
For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. What about the first chapter of Job? Do we get a, a sense that something is going on, that the angelic hosts and the sons of God are watching what's happening on this planet in the first chapter of Job? So there's biblical evidence for this idea that what Christ was doing goes well beyond merely the salvation of mankind. Why? What is it that the angels needed? Well, they've been lied to also. I mean, they've been lied to early on by Satan, and you know, they needed to get clarification. And then Colossians 1, 18 through 20 says, All things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. Heavenly things, reconciliation. That's, that's mind-blowing, isn't it? The cross of Christ was for them. Interesting. All right, somebody read the memory text as, uh, as we move on uh, today. Memory text there for us. Son of man came eating and drinking, and they say... Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Doesn't everyone eat and drink? All humans anyway? So if he's eating and drinking, which is like a normal human physiological function, why were they accusing him of being a glutton and a drunkard? Do you think he was gorging himself? They were trying to discredit him. Certainly they were trying to, no question they were trying to discredit him, absolutely. But if he was eating and drinking just like everyone else and no more, I mean, think about it. Aren't they trying to compare him with John the Baptist's example of, of uh, minimalism and, and living uh, a very stark and, and a life of self-deprivation? And yeah. here Christ comes and you know, he's... <laughs> Feels free to go to weddings and, and eat and drink and commiserate with. Well, you know, it's an interesting thought because he actually challenged them on that. Exactly. You wouldn't believe John. You won't believe me. And he actually challenged him. John didn't eat. He didn't drink. He was out there in the desert and you wouldn't believe him. I'm, you know, socializing and eating. You don't believe me. Which is, you know, you condemn me if I do, condemn me if I don't. Right. Yes. Yes. Well, wasn't it also that he was eating and drinking with people that they disapproved of? People that he shouldn't, according to them, have been eating with? And they were pretty particular about that. Yeah, yeah they, they had a... Why did they, in their mind, think that these people shouldn't be associated with? I mean, they thought they were sinners, but why would they think that? That in the way they thought God should be? Where did they believe the evidence was for whether you're blessed by God or cursed by God? What was the evidence they used? Wealth and health. Health and wealth. See, if you're healthy and you're wealthy, then you're right with God. If you've got illness or sickness or you've got, you've got poverty, well, then obviously you're cursed by God. That's only if a person was hypocrite to have that kind of thinking. But that's how they all thought. All the leadership in Christ's day thought this. Even the apostles thought this. This was Christ was trying to teach them. They had this, this misconception. Yeah. It's thought a lot today. Yes, there's a whole health, wellness gospel being taught. It's very popular. There's books sold by millions, tens of millions of books on this theology is sold in this country. Um, but did you know that the Pharisees in Christ's day, the, the rigid of the rigid, um, fasted one to two days a week. One to two days in every week they would fast. And they would make a public 
display of their fasting. They would have a sour look, and they would have other signals for society to know that they were fasting that day, you see, because the, the righteous fast and shows their, their rightness with God and how pure their characters are and so forth. Uh, did Christ participate in the Pharisaical fasts? No. 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 Yes, and so they're saying, look, he's a glutton and he's a drunkard because he doesn't fast like all the righteous and holy people do. All the holy people fast twice, once or twice a week, but he won't do it. So he doesn't respect our rules. He doesn't respect our standards. He doesn't do the things that we have established are the things that you're supposed to do if you're holy. The man-made rules, in other words, he didn't abide by. And so they turn on him because his behavior condemns their hypocrisy, it was said. And so they accuse him of being a, a drunkard and a glutton. But I don't think Christ was actually you know, gorging himself and over-drinking and stumbling around in some incoherent state. Does anybody think that? No, not at all. But he wasn't abiding by their man-made rules. And it was already said that he was associating with people that they didn't value. And so what did that do to them? Do you think they wanted to be recognized? Do you think they would have liked Christ to somehow give deference to them? To somehow uh, look up to them and value them and, and praise them? Do you think they would have liked that? Yes, and so for these types of people, when he didn't, and he actually gave uh, attention and, and time to the, to the lowly of life, it was also a condemnation of them. And so their egos got hurt, and so they had to attack Christ in order to defend themselves. Who would Christ be associating with in our society today if he were here uh, on earth today? Who would you find him with? Pardon? Homeless. Homeless? Who else? Because the tax collectors weren't homeless, were they? No, he associated with them, so it wasn't just the homeless. Who else? He'd be associating with all of us. He'd want to. Well, he'd want to associate, but but did he associate with everybody? He associated with people that came to him in faith, and, and people that trusted that he would accept them regardless of their status. Well, I like that. See, she, you know, she's no, noticing that the people he associated with were the ones who were actually willing to associate with him. See, he was willing to associate with everybody. So the distinction wasn't that Christ was drawing lines and saying, like, "Oh, I'm not going to associate with you people," but. Those people wouldn't associate with him. The Pharisees, the leaders, remember Nicodemus, who wanted to associate with Christ? He still came at night, so no one would see him, right? Okay. The, the other leaders who didn't even want Christ, didn't recognize him, the ones who wanted to crucify him, well, they wouldn't be you know, caught dead with him. See? So I think you're exactly right. He associated with anybody who would associate with him. And he wanted to associate with all people because he had the cure to sickness, and, and not just physical sickness, but the sickness of sin. I think he would have associated with people who have disease processes that they've brought on themselves that we look at and think, you did that yourself. You know what I mean? So give me an example of that today. Smoking. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Smoker is no way. <laughs> of course. I spent... Uh, I spent three years in the mission field, and then I came back and uh, joined the uh, self-supporting circle. And I had got to the place to when I was away from that group, and I was signing in the register of a local church visiting, I, re I would not put I was from Wildwood, because of the connotation that came along with it when I did. Meaning? Meaning that... I believe Jesus would accept people even though they came with a connotation that was... Oh, so he would associate with people from Wildwood? 
<laughs> okay, I'm with you now. I got gotcha. you. Okay, I think he would, don't you? Yeah. <clears throat> Somebody read the second paragraph for us there. One of our problems. One of our problems with Jesus is our perennial, perennial temptation to recreate him in our own image. The revolutionary makes him out to be one of them. Social conservatives believe they have him in their corner. To an extent that is unavoidable. After all, our own culture and situation form the matrix through which we both consciously and even unconsciously view reality. But to be conscious of this fact offers some hope that we can begin, at least in some limited way, to transcend it and attempt as objective an approach as we can to the Jesus we find in the Gospel. Making Jesus in our image. Hmm. What ways do you find that we're doing that today? pictures of it look like us. So, okay, I've got that on here. Uh, do we make Jesus to be Caucasian, African-American, Oriental? Um, you know, do we, do we do that? Do we see pictures like that? Handsome. Handsome, okay. How about constructs that suggest Jesus is too human? Someone without any divine abilities at all that he could choose to access if he wanted have you heard those ideas? I have. It's, it's actually starting to, to rise. Some of, the, some of this thought is coming up that Jesus was not able to uh, turn the rock into bread if he wanted to. He didn't have any more abilities than you or I have, uh, other than his character was better than ours. Uh, his access to divine might and power was no different than ours. Now, it is true he didn't do any of the stuff that Jesus said, of my own self I can do nothing, and all the things he did, he did through trust and faith in his Father. But don't you think that Christ was being tempted for that very thing, to use his divine prerogatives in his own self-interest? Wasn't that part of the, the deal? Yes, and when we make him too much like us, well, he didn't even have the choice. He couldn't have done it any, anyway, any other way anyway. Well, we significantly diminish the victory that he won, don't we? Yeah, that's, that, that's a subtle one, but I think it's pretty big that we try to make him too much like us. You see differing political parties trying to co-opt Christ's uh, <clears throat> words and behaviors to meet their own uh, agendas. I think that's very common today as well. Christ is on our side. We are fighting the war on terror. Right. We are the, the, the nation that is a light on the hill. Mm-hmm. Okay, remember, Reagan used those words. And... Uh, and we are the ones that are go out to bring, you know, the, the, the principles of God to the world. God's on our side. Whatever America does, God endorses. Is that did you find a text for that somewhere? <laughs> but I think that's one of the ways we do it as well. And of course, those who fly airplanes into buildings in the name of their God, they're doing it because they believe God is on their side. Don't they? Yeah. Yes. Just an answer to what you said earlier about we make Jesus sometimes too human. Um, if he can raise Lazarus from the dead, it would be easier for him to turn the stone into bread than raising somebody who died for four days. Yes, yes. If he can do that, he can do that. Yeah, the, the argument, though, would be that uh, he didn't do that in his own divine well, might. He did that through faith in his father in the same way Elijah raised the, the, the child from the dead. Because divinity never left his humanity. 
Yeah, and that's the mystery that we're always struggling to deeper understand, isn't it? That's because our mind is limited, and sometimes we need to remember that our mind is limited. Yes. We, you know, we try to think too much. We can end up not believing that there's God. <coughs> You're exactly right. Exactly right. How can he be born from a virgin anyway? I mean, he can't think too much of that if he keeps on it. Well, we could do that today. We can have virgins give birth today. That's not a big deal. We can take and uh, do artificial insemination. We can take and do uh, test tube, uh, uh, take an egg and, and a sperm, put them together, and then implant that into a virgin, and she can give birth today. I mean, that's that's not that big of a deal today, is it? No. Back then it was. Back then it was, but virgins can give birth today. Yeah. We can do that. We've got that technology. We talked about that kind of a couple of weeks ago. We talked about miracles. And we talked about how God's miracles, does he ever violate his laws to perform a miracle? Or is he always working in harmony with the laws in ways that we haven't yet figured out and comprehend? So that if we had a, uh, today, if we went back in time with our technology and had a virgin give birth, they would think that was a miracle, wouldn't it? And we don't think of that as a miracle. We think that as science. But she wasn't inseminated. In some way she was. <laughs> Pardon? Nothing earthly. Yeah, we, yeah not, not earthly, but in some way she was. All right, Sunday's lesson. Let's look at uh, Luke chapter 2, 41 through 51. Ten verses here. And if uh, we can just, uh, who would like to start reading that for us? And we'll just kind of go, whoever raises their hand, somebody would like to start that for us? And just kind of move around the room reading a verse. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Because they assumed he was with friends among the other travelers, but when he didn't show up that evening, they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things she in her heart. Okay, I wanted you to hear the scripture there. You've heard the scripture. Now let's look what the lesson authors say here. I'm going to read this out of the lesson, Sunday's lesson, uh, starting in the second paragraph down. It says, The incident on the face of it gives the impression of an irresponsible lad, utter, utterly uncaring about the pain and anxiety of his parents. What parents would not be terribly angry at such apparently callous disregard for their convenience and the rules of their home? This is one of those events that show the limits of using Jesus' conduct as a model in every case. What is happening here, it would seem, is that Jesus' messiahship has already begun to shine through at the tender age of 12. He is becoming conscious of an allegiance to a power infinitely higher than his parents, however much he respected them. The brevity of Luke's account leaves a dozen questions unanswered, such as who fed and housed the lad those three days? Did the priests have any concerns of 
to find his parents. But, Luke reports, they did not understand what he was saying to them. Jesus would return home with them and as a child be subject to them. But he had taken pains to establish the position of a higher loyalty. Nor is there any indication that he ever apologized for the terrible inconvenience he had caused his anxious parents. And what do you think about the lesson's uh, take on this? My reaction was the lesson ought to be apologizing to Jesus for, for writing it in this way. Seriously. Do you think Jesus had any reason to apologize to his parents? No. But they imply he did. The parents should have apologized to him. Thank you. You see, the parents, he says the parents should have apologized to him. There's no comment after his comment. There could, have been, there could have been room for an apology after he made it clear that he was about his father's business. Not only that, he was only 12. How many parents travel three days without even noticing that their son is We're not given any insight as to whether he apologized for causing his parents inconvenience. Well, had, had, we, we know that well, it's... I I fully believe that he loved his parents. I don't know that he felt overwhelming guilt, but... But let's deal with the assumption. The assumption that he caused his parents anxiety or he caused his parents inconvenience. That's the assumption being made. Is that assumption true or false? Yes. We don't know. Desire of Ages says that uh, Mary and Joseph had been kind of carelessly mingling with the people as they left Jerusalem and that they had not been aware that Christ was not with the caravan. So actually, Joseph and Mary were the ones at fault. They were the careless ones, not Christ. And that's the picture Desire of Age thinks. Right. Place, and, and so, in the same place, it says that by three days neglected, you know. I'm actually, I've actually got that quote, and I'm going to read it in a moment. So that's a great quote, and it's going to, it's going to bear. But look, look at the assumption that is implied. And this is what happens when we actually read things and bring our own lenses to bear on how we understand it. But they imply that Jesus caused his parents anxiety, that he had been negligent, that he had been thoughtless, and that he needed to apologize. Isn't that implied in this lesson? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's why I said they need to apologize to Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's those terrible things about God's character. It does. It's horrible. Normally the lessons just attack God's character. This time they've attacked Jesus' character. They're not the same. Yeah, yeah but they, you know, normally just do it to the Father and leave Jesus pretty much in peace. Um, Suppose that Jesus didn't tell, him, tell his parents he was going to stay. Yeah, um, that's the implication. But why wouldn't he have told them that? It also, uh, why, why didn't he tell them? Because um, I think he was in meditation and they left without him. And they took off. They didn't tell him they were, they were, they were leaving. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the assertion that uh, Jesus' conduct is not a model in every case, it also insert, asserts that, that Jesus' conduct is not a model in every case. Does it really? Well, who was Jesus? Was he not still the king of the universe? Now, what were his responsibilities and duties in coming to earth? His responsibilities were to go about the plan of salvation. That was the business he was here to do. What was the responsibility of his parents? What were their responsibilities? Yeah, even even if you're with your own kids right now, parents, when you go when you go somewhere like to a, a mall, to a to a, to the beach or or someplace, who's got the responsibility to keep track of who? Isn't that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And so you have to throw into that mix that. They 
had some inkling that this was not just any child. Yes, and I, you know, I think about the U.S. president when he travels, he's got a Secret Service entourage with him. And what's their responsibility and what's his? You know, the parents in a certain way were the guardians here, and it was their job to keep an eye on Christ, wasn't it? Yeah. So let's read that Desire of Ages quote. It says, this is out of pages, uh, page 78, starting at page 78 through a uh, couple paragraphs down. It says, wrapped in contemplation of these scenes, Jesus was, came to the, 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 this was the first time at age 12 he'd come to the, this temple. And the first time he saw all the, the rituals and things happening there. Now, he had, his mother had been teaching him, don't go into the local synagogue, and he'd been reading the scriptures as a child, and it said he was growing in, in, in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. His mind was growing and understanding the scriptures as he was a child. Now, at age 12, he comes to the sanctuary for the first time, the temple, and he sees all these things being carried on. And it says, wrapped in contemplation of these scenes, he did not remain beside his parents. He sought to be alone. When the Paschal services were ended, he still lingered in the temple courts, and when when the worshippers departed from Jerusalem, he, w- he was left behind. Meanwhile, Joseph and Mary were in great perplexity and distress. In the departure from Jerusalem, they had lost sight of Jesus, and they knew not that he had tr- tarried behind. The country was then densely populated, and the caravan from Galilee were very large. There was much confusion as they left the city. On the way, the pleasure of traveling with friends and acquaintances absorbed their attention, and they did not notice his absence till night came on. Then as they halted for rest, they missed his helpful hands of their child. Supposing him to be with their company, they felt no anxiety. Young as he was, they had trusted him implicitly, expecting uh, that when needed, he would be ready to assist them, anticipating their wants as he had always done. But now their fears were aroused. They searched for him throughout the company, but in vain. Shuddering, they remembered how Herod had tried to destroy him in his infancy. Dark forebodings filled their heart. They bitterly reproached themselves. In the school of the rabbis, they found Jesus. Rejoiced as they were, they could not forget their grief and anxiety. When he was with them again, his mother said words that implied reproof. Son, why hast thou dealt with us like this? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee, sorrowing. How is it you sought me? Jesus answered. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And as they seemed not to understand his words, he pointed upward. On his face was a light that at which they wondered. Divinity was flashing through humanity. On finding him in the temple, they had listened to what was passing between him and the rabbis, and they were astonished at his questions and answers. His words started a train of thought that would never be forgotten. And, and his question to them had a lesson. Would you not, that I must be about my father's business? Jesus had engaged in the work that he had come to the world to do, but Joseph and Mary had neglected theirs. God had shown them high honor in committing to them his son. Holy angels had directed the course of Joseph in order to preserve the life of Jesus. But for an entire day, they had lost sight of him who they should have not have forgotten for a moment. And when their anxiety was relieved, they had not censured themselves, but had cast blame on Jesus. Now, I thought the and authors were going hand in hand with Mary and Joseph and blaming Jesus for their failure. That's how I read it. What do you all think? Yeah, over here. Well, this was, um, Ellen White said it very clearly that they had lost sight of Jesus. And this was the very beginning of Christ's ministry. He, it was a very personalized lesson to Mary and Joseph. As the, as the Messiah, he um, came, everything that he did was individualized for that specific person. And this situation taught Mary and Joseph something that he, he couldn't teach them in any other way. 
Um, this is um, this goes also back to the man that um, Jesus healed of blindness with the clay. It wasn't so much the clay or the healing power of that. It was to test his faith to see, are you willing to be humiliated, walk through with spit and mud on your eyes, and go in this filthy river? Do you really have faith in me? Um, he did the same thing with two other blind men. He said, do you believe that I can do this for you? And they said, yes, we believe you can heal us. And he said, then you will be healed according to your faith. And, um, but that wasn't true for all the miracles, was it? No. He, he, did, he healed people according to what they could handle, what, um, what would benefit them in the best way what would really make an impact on their life. And what was the purpose of those healings? Because what happened to every one of those people he healed? They died. They died. <laughs> they died and are buried. Every one of them that he healed died. Let me put it in the context. Did Christ come to heal them so they could have 70 years on earth and die? No. No. Somebody came. So he, the purpose of the healing is what you think you're suggesting, to open their minds to something much greater to heal their souls for eternity. Yeah, exactly. Back to this question about parents, though. With your knowledge of Jesus and his mission and what we know, if you could go back in time and like be in Mary and Joseph's shoes for a, for a short time, and you knew what his mission was, and you've raised him, you know, I mean, it's the virgin birth. I mean, the angels have come and told you. The, the, the shepherds have come. The, 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 the wise men from the east have come. I mean, you've got all this evidence that, hey, this is something really special. This is the Messiah we've been waiting for. Now, you've had him at home for 12 years, and this is the first time he's going to the sanctuary temple, the temple. Do you think you might have some curiosity just to keep your eye on him and see what's going to happen? I mean, think about it. I would be like watching him like a hawk. Okay, what's he going to do? Okay, okay, he's the Messiah. Is he going to do something here? And they took their eyes off of him. I mean... I don't know. For me, I would have been, like, glued to him. Okay, yes. It seems to me like um, this is a very uh, good lesson for parents present day also. Uh, for every Sabbath, I see, well, growing up, you know, or seeing other parents, they just kind of, they come to church all dressed up and everything and ready to go and see their friends and they just drop their kids off in Sabbath school and then head off to do whatever they do with their friends. And they're not really concerned with bringing their kids to church with them to teach them, them you know, along with the teachers of religion. They just want to drop their kids off and have their own, their own time. And it seems like they call it the, past, the Passover uh, festival. And it seems like they're just going there for a big, you know, congregation of, of people, friends, and hanging out. And they're not really concerned with actually going there and bringing Jesus with them themselves and helping him learn and teach him about religion. They're just kind of, you know, hey, we'll drop him off with his, with his friends and he can go hang out with them and we'll hang out with our friends and they're kind of missing the, the point of going, of bringing their, their 
their children with them and teaching them. The responsibility of raising them in, in the Lord. Yeah. Yes. You're, you're, yes. I have two things. First of all, nowhere does it say that they asked Jesus specifically to come with them and then he disobeyed them and said, you know, blatantly said, no, I will not do that. I think the situation would be different if they had requested for him to follow them or to go back with them. You know, I don't think that he would have blatantly disobeyed them. And then also, I think Mary and Joseph's attack on Jesus. It's humiliation on their part. They knew what their responsibility was, and they under, I think they recognized, but natural human instinct is to cast blame elsewhere. And you know, soon as Adam sinned, it wasn't me. It was that woman you gave me. <laughs> okay? Yeah, I think you're right. Yes. Get his hand back there somewhere. Uh, I just kind of go along with that, I guess. That uh, too often when we lose sight on Jesus, we blame it on you know something else or somebody else, and I think that's the. You know, the, the lesson also suggested that the, that this example is an example of another limitation on using the events of Jesus' life as examples for our conduct. Is it really? I mean, was Jesus going about doing exactly what God would have him do with his life? Perfectly, completely. Now, as a parent, would you like your child to go about doing exactly, perfectly, completely what God would have him do for his life? Yes. So I don't find this as an example of, of limiting the example of Jesus for our, our life. Do you? There's a couple more we're going to get to. Linda. Well, I think that it's kind of indicating he had a habit pattern in his life. And his habit was to look after his parents. His habit was to meet their every beck and need. It says as, you know, they, they missed his helping hand. He was always ready to do what needed to be done and looking after their desires. And for once, he wasn't really looking after their desires. They expected him to show up and be there like he always had for 12 years. And now all of a sudden their needs have been supplanted by Okay, that comment, that comment will segue right in. Just keep kind of that in mind, how their focus was versus his. In, in the lesson authors on page 83 said this, and, it's, and that's in the teacher's quarterly, page 83. He said, should Jesus not have felt bad that he caused his parents so much pain? That's the question. How much pain did he cause them when he died? Whoa. No, no, no. See, this is, this is a great question for us to, to, uh, to dissect. Because I have so many patients who are afraid to do what they know is right, reasonable, healthy, because of fear that someone they care about or know will get, their, will get hurt, will get their feelings hurt, will be disappointed in them. Um, and usually the one who gets their feelings hurt is the one who's in the wrong. See, the parents got their, got, if they were hurt or anxious or disappointed, it wasn't because Jesus did anything wrong. It was because they were in the wrong. The lesson misses that completely, and they want to blame Jesus for the hurt on the parents. I have many, many patients who are in situations in which they won't do what's right. In my book, I describe a case of a 16-year-old who's out with a guy, and, um, and he wants to uh, take the physical relationship beyond where she is comfortable. And for fear of hurting his feelings, okay, I don't want him to be mad. I don't want him to be upset. Now, she is tempted that if she were to say no and do what's right, he'll be hurt. You see the problem here? And many people get trapped in, in family dynamics. They won't say what's right. They won't do what's right because somebody might get mad at them. Somebody might get hurt. Somebody might get upset. Well, the person who's getting hurt and upset is almost always the one who was in the wrong to start with. Yes, I saw a hand. Yes, Nathan. Abel caused Cain a lot of pain. Abel caused Cain a lot of pain, yes. You know, I was just going to say that uh, Jerusalem 12 years prior to that 
had been a place where uh, Herod had <coughs> sent the soldiers to Bethlehem. It was from Jerusalem 12 years before. So as Joseph and Mary are going back to Jerusalem again 12 years later, you would think that they would say, now you remember what happened the last time we were here? You know, so they would be extra on guard as they're going into this big city again. Yeah, another, another point. Well taken, yes. You read there, I think it's the last paragraph, where this light radiated from Christ. And his parents saw it. At that, that almost was a, a review right from God. Yeah, that would be a good point. That would be a good point. My, yes? One of my favorite uh, quotes from the Spirit of Prophecy says, To stand in defense of truth and righteousness when the majority forsake us, to fight the battle of the Lord when champions are few. This will be our test. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. I hope you all could hear that. Yes. Linda? I've been thinking, is there any connection to the Bar Mitzvah that is uh, in the Jewish religion today? At that, about that age, a young boy goes through sort of a... Uh, initiation, if you will, into adulthood in the Jewish church, and it was about Jesus' age. Would that be kind of commiserate with his bar mitzvah, so to speak? I believe that's true. Yes. Childhood to transitioning into more of an adulthood experience or taking responsibility for one's own thinking. All right, Monday's lesson. Somebody read the first paragraph for us in Monday's lesson. When Jesus descended the Mount of Transfiguration, a man emerged from a crowd at the base with a request that Jesus heal his son. He had taken the boy to the disciples, the man explained, but they had been unable to cure him. Jesus' response, as it comes through in translation, gives the impression of being peeved by the request. Quote, O O unbelieving and perverse generation, he replied, how long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. At the very least, such words seem uncharacteristic of the one we have come to know as the, quote, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. How might we explain Jesus' tone here? It's a difficult call. Gospels mention other occasions when Jesus certainly appeared angry as well. First off, do we know Jesus' tone there? No. I mean, how do we explain it? How many of us heard it? And is tone important? Well, I've said this before, but if any of you also saw the movie My Cousin Vinny, um, Vinny's cousin gets arrested for murder of two people. And in the interview with the sheriff, the sheriff is confronting him like they always depict and accuses him of murdering these two people. You murdered these two people. And, and Vinny's cousin goes, I murdered these two people? And in court, the uh, prosecuting attorney put the sheriff on the, on the stand and said, when you confronted him about murdering those two people, what were his exact words? And he looked at his notebook and he said, his exact words were, I murdered those two people. <laughs> Does tone make a difference? Yes. Okay, huge difference, huge difference. It's not just the words that are said. And so as you think about it, what kind of a tone do you think was in Jesus' way? Do you think he was peeved? Or do you think maybe his, his heart was breaking? That they weren't appreciating, that their faith wasn't growing, that their confidence, that they were still held in such bondage. Do you think he was peeved at the people? Or do you think his heart was breaking for them? Yes. Maybe the maybe the man was embarrassed to bring his son to Jesus himself, since the Pharisees uh, did not approve of Jesus. Maybe he was trying to go behind the scenes, taking his son to the disciples and not showing faith that Jesus was who he was, since so many people were saying that Jesus was not Jesus. Maybe he was trying to 
sneak in. Kind of like Nicodemus coming at night, maybe, is what you're suggesting. That's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought about that, but maybe so. Yeah. Somebody read the bottom two paragraphs in, uh, in Monday's lesson. Many Christians consider that the way for us to proceed with choices in our complex contemporary world is to ask, what would Jesus do? It sounds simple enough until one asks the logical preliminary question, what did Jesus do? Here we discover that the answers are not always as simple as we may think. What, for example, are the implications of the above passages for our own conduct today? Presuming that what Jesus would do today has some correlation with what he actually did then, in first century Roman Palestine, how in the world might a contemporary Christian go about replicating and applying these bizarre incidents of tree cursing and temple disrupting? If our favorite grocery store happens not to stock a particular fruit we are craving because it's out of season, do we proceed, with Jesus' blessing, to curse the fruit bin, the produce manager, and everything else in sight? And if the preacher goes on too much about money one Sunday, or if we are generally miffed at various church personnel and programs, do we bust in during a worship service and start upending pews, pulpits, altars, anything not nailed down, and bouncing ushers from the premises? I mean, guys? <laughs> I mean, think, look, you see what the lesson is doing this week? I mean, do you think that the, the correlation between going into the supermarket to get some, some fruit and the bin is empty and you start cursing everyone out is appropriate understanding of what Christ did? And what, and, how, and what kind of implication does it suggest on how we see what Christ did? Doesn't it kind of put what Christ did in a horrible light? So let's first talk about the fig tree. Uh, you all know that figs, in, in, at least in that part of the world, that when they're in full foliage, see the fruit comes on before the foliage comes on. And so when you look at a fig tree and see all the foliage, it is advertising itself as having fruit, because the fruit comes first and the foliage comes second. And so any, any tree that you see foliage on, you can assume it's got fruit, because that's the way it works. And so he went to the tree and it had no fruit. Now, was Christ cursing this tree because his personal appetites weren't satisfied? Oh, I don't get anything to eat. Oh, that just upsets me. I didn't get my food. I'm hungry. And it was all about him? Or did he take this opportunity to give a lesson to his disciples? It was well known in Jewish thought that the tree and the, or the vine represents the Jewish nation. And the Jewish leadership was advertising themselves as being the source of virtuous spiritual fruit and spiritual righteousness. Follow the Pharisees, follow the Sadducees, follow the leaders, do with all their man-made rules, and that's where you have the fruits of righteousness. That's how they advertise themselves. But they were as barren as this tree, advertising itself as having fruit. And so Christ took an opportunity to give a lesson to say, if you advertise yourself to be spiritually virtuous, but there are no real genuine fruits of the Spirit in the heart, well, you're going to end up like this tree. This is merely an object lesson to teach the disciples. This was nothing about Christ being miffed because he couldn't eat that day or at that moment. It's horrible. Thoughts about that? Look at what Christ did for over a thousand years to, for the Jewish nation. You go back to the Old Testament, time and time again, he had to bring them back. Exactly. Then you look at what Christ did when he was here. He was still trying to bring people back. So what about the idea that cursing the tree and then it died and withered is evidence that God will curse the wicked and kill them in the end? <laughs> you see, you see, he cursed the tree and the tree died, therefore God will inflict death upon the wicked in the end. He was just showing the true condition of the tree anyway. He let us see what the real condition without fruitfulness, just having a pretense. 
where does all living things obtain its life? Where do all living things obtain its life? From God. From God, absolutely. Um, and what is the curse of God? Him letting go. We have that biblical evidence. The curse of God is him letting go. Any biblical evidence for that? Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, starting verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then Paul goes on to tell us they reject the knowledge of God. And in verse 24, 26, and 28 he says, Therefore God gave them up or God let them go. But what about, remember the curse, he who hangs on the tree is cursed of God, right? And what did God do to his son? My God, my God, why have you forsaken forsaken me, given me up, let me go. The curse of God is letting go. Now, if you derive your life from God and you insist on leaving him, you don't want to be with him, you reject him, leave me alone, get out of my life, and God finally grants you your wish and he lets you go and you're disconnected from your source of life, what's going to happen? You're going to wither and die. And there's the, med- the parable Jesus talked about the, the vine and the branches, and the van- branches who are not connected to the vine, what happens to them? They wither and die. The vine doesn't kill them. And this whole idea that the vine kills the branches that break the- off from the is, is perverse. And this is taught throughout Christianity at large, that the person you really have to be afraid of, so you don't need to worry about sin, guys. Sin isn't the problem. If God would leave us alone, get a little self-control, well, we could have eternal life in sin because sin doesn't do anything. The problem is God uses his power to kill us. And if he wouldn't kill us, well, we could, we could live forever. There's nothing wrong with sin. There's something wrong with God. You see, the twisted thinking, and that's what a lot of people say without saying those words when they say, well, in order for God to be just, he'll have to punish sin and sinners in the end. And if he didn't punish sinners, well, then he wouldn't be just. As if the punishment for sin comes out from God's hand. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the wages of sin itself is death. Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth that. James chapter 1, verse 15. In Galatians, Paul says, from the carnal nature we reap, the man who sows to the carnal nature, from that nature will reap destruction. Yes? The same person that died for us, he's the same person that's going to be our judge. So how can you die for a person and then not judge him in the best way you can do it? Well, that opens up a whole other discussion, doesn't it? Yeah, the whole idea of judgment and what judgment's all about. Wow, boy. Mm. Temptation. <laughs> Should we have that discussion? Uh, oh. It's very best to judge us very fairly and very just. Yes. Um, is our eternal destiny determined by God's judgment of us? No. No. Our eternal destiny is not determined by how God judges us. What's our eternal destiny determined by? Our judgment of God. Do we judge Him as trustworthy? And if we trust Him, and we judge Him, I trust you, God, then what happens in our hearts? We are healed. But if we judge God as untrustworthy, then what happens in our hearts? See, Christ says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, which means we make it, somebody's knocking at your door. Somebody comes to your door. Bam, bam, bam. You look through the people. They're standing there. Dark glasses, dark hat, dark suit. Hey, I'm from the FBI. Let me in. I trust that. Come on in. <laughs> Wait a minute. Do you, do you let somebody in you don't trust? No. If you let Christ into your heart, doesn't that mean you've made a judgment that he can be trusted? Sure. You see, and if you don't, if you judge that he can't be trusted, you keep the heart door closed. So our eternal destiny is determined by how we judge God. So fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. The hour that he is being judged. And then if we judge him trustworthily, 
we get healed. And so it's not a matter. It's our own condition determines uh, whether we've opened the heart, accepted Christ in, been regenerated. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. All those people are going to be saved. All those who said, God can't be trusted. I don't trust him. Get out of my life. Leave me alone. Well, their own condition results in their, from the, those who reap, so to the carnal nature, from that nature, reap destruction. God doesn't have to inflict it upon them. What about the suggestion of turning over the pews in church if the preacher asks for money? <laughs> and, and, and I'll jump to something in the, uh, in the teacher's quarterly in a different day of the week. Let me find it. Um, it says in page 87 in the teacher's quarterly, it says, Consider an imaginary situation in your church. For some time, rumors, rumors have been floating that an elder has been having inappropriate, uh, behaving inappropriately with members of the opposite sex. There has also been talk of two deacons misappropriating church funds. You feel concerned about it. Would you be justified in exposing this during a divine worship service and demanding action? If not, why not? See, I'm telling you, these guys are just missing the point. Okay? Do we act publicly on rumor? No. No. And do we act publicly on individual private sin? No. No. The lesson authors are attempting to utilize Christ's action in cleansing the temple as a model for this situation, but they misapply the entire situation. What is the problem? Well, Christ intervened to bring a halt to public sin actively happening at that time in public. And not just public sin, but public misrepresentations of God in action. Misrepresentations that obstructed the ability to come to know God. So, if you went to church, instead of the the situation they gave, you go to church, and the pastor is on stage making out with somebody besides his wife and is encouraging other people in the audience to do it too, would you then make a public statement? Okay? I mean, it's public misrepresentations of God and public sin that Christ is dealing with here. Not this rumor and innuendo and all this other stuff, okay? You have previously brought up a great point about this act of, of you know, the righteous indignation <laughs> of overturning the money changers' tables and the, the, the apparent contradiction between when he was finished with that, children came up and sat in his lap and then you have you've previously wondered how in the world... I'm glad you brought that up, Russell. That's a great point. Just remember, the demeanor that Christ did it... Yeah. All the children stayed behind. So imagine if, if you did make a, if you did have cause at church to raise your voice and run out the wicked who were misrepresenting God from the church sanctuary, and, and you had supposed anger in your voice that you did it in such a way that none of the children in the sanctuary got scared and they stayed behind as their parents ran out. Now you figure out how to do that, then you'll kind of get a sense of what Jesus was doing. Okay. All right, yeah, this is a great point, Russell. All right, Tuesday's lesson we're talking about now. We just talked about the figs. It's time to talk about the pigs. Okay? It's the figs and the pigs. Okay? Because we have the story of Jesus and the, and the, and the demoniac that was healed, and, uh, and the, uh, the demons went into the pigs and ran them off into the, into the lake, into the river. And they, uh, the lesson authors, we don't have time to read all that they suggest, but um, why do you think Jesus asked the name? And they said, our name is Legion, for we are many. Why do you think he asked the name? Well, uh, if you read around, some some commentators will suggest it was because he wanted the disciples to realize how powerful he was, that he could take on an entire legion of um, demonic forces and and overcome them, and it was to enhance the faith. And I I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that at all. I think there's maybe some insight in there. Um, But did Jesus know personally, um, before he came to earth, all the various angels who left? Yes. Do you think maybe he just wanted to know which one he was dealing with? Mm -hmm. Which one are you? That rebelled against me. I mean, he knew that. I mean, think if you were in that position, if you had a third of your family rebel 
and now one of them is hiding behind someone else's facade and, and acting, would you maybe want to say, okay, which one are you? I was just—that just thought that crossed my mind. I'm curious why the pig, the demons requested to go into the swine. That's the next question. Luke chapter eight twenty-six through thirty-nine gives us an account of the same thing, and it says that they they said to Jesus, um, "Don't throw us into the deep, or don't throw us into the abyss." Now, many um, other Christian speakers and writers and preachers and teachers will tell you that the, that they didn't want to be sent to hell. What do you think it means, the abyss, the deep? What's our answer for that? Well, it's always good to compare Scripture with Scripture. And there's another account given of the same event in Mark 5, 1 through 20. And in Mark 5, 1 through 20, the demons this time are reported as saying, remember, it's the same event. Don't send us away from this country. Now, the one says, don't send us into the deep. The other says, don't send us away from this country. Or don't send us out of the country. Does that give us insight into what this might mean? The demons, I think, didn't want to be sent into isolation. They didn't want to be isolated, didn't want to be sent away from human contact. And we can compare this with Christ's explanation about what happens when the evil and unclean spirit is cast out. They go through the arid places. Looking for somewhere else to habitate. And then they find seven more. Because what's it like for someone who is in the mindset of a demon, okay, and you know their mindset is in total opposite to the love of God, to be left alone with their own thoughts. Yeah, it's torment. They have to stay distracted. Okay, and also the lesson suggests, I wish we had time to read it because we've, we've read so. but the lesson suggests that Jesus directed the demons to destroy the pigs. That's what this suggests. The words they use, Jesus directed the demons to destroy the pigs. Did he do that? No, he, he met the request. They, they wanted to. No, he did not direct the demons to destroy the pigs. Uh, he allowed them, he gave them permission to enter the pigs, but once he gave them permission, were the demons free to control the pigs any way they wanted? They could have the pigs graze around all the place, you know? I mean, the demons are the ones that ran them over. That Jesus didn't direct them to do that, which reveals that the demons are the source of destruction, not Christ. Yes? Why would the demons even have a choice? Like, they're saying, don't send us, or don't send us there, but why would they... Why would God honor their, their request? That's the next question. The lesson author suggests that Jesus was insensitive to the pig owners and insensitive to the fig tree owner, uh, causing them commercial uh, financial loss. Uh, and he didn't even care about their commerce, their business, their finance, and he injured them commercially. Jesus, Jesus suggested this. I mean, excuse me, excuse me, the lesson author suggested this about Jesus. As Jesus looks into your life right now, what is Jesus' number one goal for your life? Is it not healing of heart, mind, character, and eternal life? Yes. Okay. Is, is it not your eternal salvation? That's what, well, then, would Jesus' attitude be any different toward the owners of the pigs? Or is his number one goal for them their healing of heart, mind, character, and eternal salvation? Isn't that number one? Okay, a quick paragraph and we'll close. This is out of Zara of Ages 338. It was in mercy to the owners of the swine... Uh, that this loss had been permitted to come upon them. They were absorbed in earthly things and cared not for the great interest of spiritual life. Jesus desired to break the spell of selfish indifference that they might accept his grace, but regret and indignation for temporal loss blinded their eyes to the Savior's mercy. Jesus wasn't being indifferent to them. He was in compassion, intervening in a way designed to bring them to eternal life. Christ is always the model to follow when we understand properly what his motives and methods and principles are. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have 
come to this earth to reveal the truth about your nature, about your character, about your government, to expose the lies and the fraud of Satan, but also to win us back to trust and to restore your love into our hearts. We pray now that our minds can be cleared from the subtle deceptions that sometimes confuse us, that we will not be puzzled by your conduct, but we will be encouraged and stimulated to be like you in everything we do. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.